hire people. The, way, the descriptions we use, I hate the word hunter when it comes to sales for somewhat the same reason, because really what you're saying is, look, we're going to hire somebody based on their personality as opposed to what we think they can actually do for us. Absolutely. It starts in hiring. And I look for people that are already trying to develop themselves really in any category. Even if they're not trying to develop themselves in sales yet, I look for people that are trying to learn anything. Because most people stop trying to learn anything once formal education stops. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Kevin Dorsey. He's the VP of Inside Sales at Patient Pop. And KD's joining me today on Sales Enablement, episode 781, to talk about the major hurdles in improving sales performance across the profession and how to overcome them. KD shares how taking responsibility for investing in his own sales education has been so critical and vital to his success. And we'll dig into how we should be educating sellers to develop their skills, their thought processes, and their business acumen. We'll also dive into the importance of making incremental changes in behavior that add up to big improvement over time and why that is such an important process for sellers. All this and much, much more. Now, a couple things before we get to KD. First, if you haven't already connected with me on LinkedIn, please do. You can search for me, Andy Paul or the usual preamble for LinkedIn slash real Andy Paul. That's me. And as I said, that's where I'm having a lot of conversations about important sales topics these days. Also, feel free to drop me a message if you have a question about anything that we discuss on this show. So thank you very much. All right, let's jump into it. Kevin Dorsey, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm excited to be here, Andy. It's a long time coming. It's a long time coming, and I'm looking forward to it as well. So where are you uh, sheltering in place these days? So I am holed up in Marina Del Rey, California with my wife, two daughters, and rescue pit bull Penny Pickles. <laughs> Penny Pickles. Isn't that uh, Rugrats? So it's pretty close. I mean, Pickles, Tommy Pickles. I don't right. know if there was a Penny in there, actually. I'll have to All right. Look. Well, maybe, it's just, maybe it's just the Tommy Pickles that I'm picking up on. So mm-hmm. yeah, you, you uh, met my producer, Alec, who's also my son, and... Uh, Alec, you can chime in here. Didn't you used to follow the Rugrats back in the day? For sure. <laughs> and what was the other one? Doug. Doug was a classic, right? Yeah. What else? The real uh, man, bringing it way back now for sure. I was I was a Scooby Doo kid though. Like that was that was my big one. Rugrats was fun, yeah. but like Scooby Doo was like my go-to. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, God, Scooby Doo. That was past my time. But uh, I'm trying to think, cartoons. Well, we had when I was a kid, we had uh, Mighty Mouse. We had all these sort of superhero ones, but um, Huckleberry Hound. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. we don't need to go down those roads. So, uh, <laughs> so one thing I want to talk about, just sort of off the bat, is and you and I are are uh, uh, in alignment in this topic, and it's fun to see. Is is so on your lead sentence on your LinkedIn profile is a quote from Jim Rohn. Yeah, famous mm-hmm. business thinker. You say formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Now that that mirrors one of my favorite, or my absolute favorite, Jim Rohn quote, which is very similar. Which is, income seldom exceeds personal development. And so, what what's the value of that quote for you? How has that inspired you? Um, I mean, it, it inspired. It inspires me because it, it really that quote really did I think make a shift in in my life because it is so true, 
right? Like you can wait to learn things. You can wait to experience things, or you can learn from someone who's already learned it and already experienced it. And, you know, that's something I talk to people about all the time. Like why take 10 years to get good at something? If you can learn from someone who was good at it for 10 years. Right. And so the fact that we were talking about a little bit beforehand, that you can take a book from someone who has years of experience, has gone through all the ups and downs, the failures and all that, and you can learn their best stuff in five, six hours. Like, and and why it makes you a fortune is because it never depreciates, right? Like you get to keep that knowledge. I think Mm -hmm. very few of us actually remember much of what we were taught growing up. Because it, someone else did it, that formal education. It's what you learn right. on your own that sticks with you. And I think that's where the real value comes. Well, and it, it, this, for me, this is more important than ever. Because I, interesting, just about an hour ago, I got a call. First time I'd spoken with this person in nearly 40 years. This was my first boss in sales. Hmm. And he had, he had just retired from a long career in sales with uh, HP, Compaq, and so on. And, um, yeah, so we hadn't talked in all this time, but one of the things we kept coming back to was that we were the beneficiaries because we met working for a big computer company of, of sort of this formal training as just a base, but, um, that it was still up to us from that point forward through our experience, through reading books, listening to tapes and so on to, to really fill out that, that, that base of experience and knowledge we got in the training and yet, it seems to be a really high hurdle for many sellers to get across. And I don't. This is not a. This is not a, a generational issue. This has been an issue that's existed forever, right? As as you can sort of look at the top salespeople and the top performers and say, yeah, these are the ones that are the most curious. They're the ones that are investing in themselves. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think one of the reasons why I think that's so prevalent in sales is because of one of the lies that's been told about sales for so long that. Salespeople are natural salespeople. <laughs> and yeah. I'm the least natural salesperson in the world. Oh, I'm right there with you, right? But then that's also why people like us will search out improvement and knowledge. If you've been told you're a natural, if you've been told, hey, you're really good at sales, you should go do it, it plants this seed that you don't have to get better. It plants this idea that you already have what it takes to be in sales. Even what we tell people about sales, right? Like if you just put in the work, you'll get the reward. The harder you work, the more you'll make. And it's not always actually that true because if you're bad, the harder you work doesn't mean you make more. But that lie has been told for so long that salespeople are natural that I think it almost steers them away from seeking out new knowledge. They feel like they've already got it. Yeah, well, this is this whole Dunning-Kruger effect that Mm -hmm. Dunning and Kruger came up with 20 years ago, which is especially prevalent, I think, in sales as you get yeah, you get that sort of first early success and you think, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I got this. <laughs> I, I got this, right? <laughs> I got this. And then to your point, if especially if they've been told that they're sort of natural at it, is stop learning. What's my incentive to learn mm-hmm. if I know everything? Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, so how do we sort of change that? Because it seems like a lot of that's coming away with, coming from in some part in the way we we hire people the the descriptions we use you know the for me this yeah i, I hate the word hunter when it comes mm-hmm. to, to sales um for somewhat the same reason because really what you're saying is look we're gonna hire somebody based on the 
their personality as opposed to what we think they can actually do for us. No, absolutely. It starts in hiring and it's something that I look for, right? Like I look for people that are already trying to develop themselves really in any category. Even if they're not trying to develop themselves in sales yet, I look for people that are trying to learn anything, right? Because most people stop trying to learn anything once formal education stops, right? Like they just stop trying to learn. And mm-hmm. so I, I screen for that in hiring because also too, and we might get into this, I think most people actually have the characteristics of a great salesperson wrong. Like people, what makes a great salesperson? Oh, like gritty, confident, tenacious, you know, um, outgoing, extroverted, strong personality, a talker, right? Like, mm-hmm. but if you actually look at what most of the best salespeople are, they actually carry themselves with a quiet confidence. They're great listeners. They're very empathetic. They're incredibly curious. They're detail oriented, right? Like people don't talk about that in the sales hiring process, right? To your earlier word, hunter, gritty, yeah. which, which people get twisted by the way. Grit is just another way to say stubborn. And so we wonder why <laughs> salespeople are so hard to manage. We've been right. building, we've been building this culture of hard to manage people because we look for grit. If you took that word to resiliency, right? Able to bounce back from challenging things. That's different than grit. And so I think people get the hiring wrong, which then starts this Dunning-Kruger, right? We got the wrong people in the rep role, which then often leads to the wrong people in the leadership role. And now we've got the industry in the place that it's in right now. Yeah. And I've, I've written about this again recently. I said, you know, what's the one question that, you know, your buyer will never ask you, and the one question I'll ask you is, hey, could you be more salesy? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, no one has ever asked me to be more salesy. Yet, this is seemingly the prototype that not only that we hire to, but that we train to. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's uh, and we're going to jump into this in just a second. So, I wanted to finish up on this this last sort of point we started on. Is, is So, how do we encourage people? How do we help people change behaviors, have the motivation to assume the mantle of responsibility for their own development because yeah there's not a lot of training that goes on or substantive training or valuable training or training that they retain um for sellers is they have to sort of as said as, as you've done you know you've got <laughs> we logged on and i was giving you a hard time about the stack of books behind you and saying you're showing off but but yeah you've read them so how do we get Somebody to say, look, I'm going to turn off the TV for an hour tonight and just read this this book on sales or mindset or psych- buyer psychology or whatever. Well, I mean, the first is I, they need examples of people that are, right? Like if they don't have someone to look up to that's encouraging them to do it, it's really hard. And like, I mean, this is why the self-development industry even exists is because most people actually don't seek these things out. Human beings generally are relatively complacent to stay the way that they are. And mm-hmm. so, you you know, you said the word, most sales reps, you know, again, it starts from the top. If they weren't trained, now you would think intuitively, oh, I wasn't trained, I'll go seek it out. But really what that implies is that training and education isn't important because otherwise they would have taught me, right? Otherwise they would have handed me this book. Right. And so my teams know this, my managers know this, like I give them books to read. I'm sharing what I'm learning from 
the books that I'm going through, right? There's mandatory readings for my managers and for my reps. And so they see it from the top down. And I think that helps establish like, oh, this is what I should be doing. Because if, you know, if the reader, if the leaders don't read, why would the people under them read, right? If the leaders aren't sharing what they're learning, why would the people under them think that's how it needs to be? And so I think it starts with people like you and people like me showing people this is the way to do it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and so we have that issue still. We'll take it up a level. Why aren't more managers more curious? Why aren't they more interested in developing their people? And this sort of reflects even the way that we we supposedly coach sellers these days. Is you know, the the term was originated and meant to be applied as, you know, how do we develop our sellers as individuals? But the way it's used today, it's primarily to how do we help close this deal? Mm-hmm. No, and it, but you mentioned it too, it's the managers. If the managers weren't coached, right? So sometimes, you know, people in life, it goes one or two ways. If you weren't given something, you tend to not give it to somebody else, right? Like if you weren't coached, you tend to not coach. One, you don't know Mm -hmm. how, you didn't have an example, but two, you just don't think about it. I think one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about coaching is because I didn't get it. Like I wanted to succeed so badly, but had to figure it out on my own that now that I'm in a position to lead, it's like, I want to just try to share that as much as I can, because I know how desperately I would have loved to have had that when I was coming up in the game. But very few people teach their managers how to coach. Like we spend just as much time, most of my time coaching now isn't on the rep level because that's my manager's job. I'm coaching my managers on how to be coaches. So I, here's here's a uh, my big question of the week. <laughs> I've been <laughs> toying around with interest in your, and it's it's you know somewhat unrealistic, but I, yeah, it's for purposes of discussion. Is so we spend twenty billion dollars a year in the U.S. on sales training every year, of which approximately five percent goes to training managers. So what do you think would happen to sales results and sales performance if we flipped that on its head and spent nineteen billion of that? on training our managers how to manage and coach performance and spent the rest on training sellers? I mean, we'd see a massive shift. We'd see a massive shift because also to, you know, the training industry, we also know that very little of the training is ever retained. Right. And it's not retained because there's no repetition and there's no repetitions because the managers aren't bought into it. And the managers aren't bought into it because they weren't the ones delivering the coaching and the training. Mm-hmm. And so if we flipped that and the managers were getting trade on great methodologies and the managers were getting trade on great psychology and influence, and then also how to be good teachers. So right. about two years ago, I made a big shift in a lot of my reading to be on the science of learning because I was like, why, like, why are people still not doing what they could or what they should? And I was like, well, maybe they're just actually not learning it. Like yeah. maybe the way I'm teaching it is wrong. Maybe the way my managers are teaching. So I spent a lot of time learning about learning. Do you read Range by David Epstein? Oh, I loved Range. Yeah. I, I think Range speaks to me personally of like all the me different too. things that I've done, <laughs> right? And all the different like industries exactly. that starts to come together, right? But like reading things like the talent code, the science of accelerated yep. learning, make it stick, not made to stick, make, yeah, make it, it stick. stick. Like. Right learning how people actually retain information. Because what's actually interesting, we've been taught our whole lives, but we were never taught how to learn. Mm -hmm. 
we were never taught how to actually learn, like what it means to be a good learner. And so I try to employ a lot of that with my managers and with our onboarding is to do it in a way that people can learn. But then that way, the repetition comes from the managers. The managers are in there every single day following up on the training, following up on the coaching, right? So I start with my managers and then to the reps, not the other way around. Yeah, and I I think one way to sort of put this in perspective for for people and and want to ask you this question because I was just having this conversation with somebody uh, is, so where did you learn how to sell? Who taught you? Right? You, you've referred to it before as you didn't really have the training, but even people have training. I mean, I look at my own experience and I said, went to work out of college for a huge company. We had 10 weeks of classroom training my first year uh, on the job. And Yet, I would put that as last on my list of where I learned how to sell. You know, I learned from experience and my, and my customers first. So, my bosses, second, self-education, third, my peers, fourth, and fifth was the formal training. Yeah. I mean, I, geez, if I look at my background and career, I had a, a I had no sales manager in college when I started selling, right? I was like doing door to door and insurance, right? Like there was no manager. So there was no right. support there at all. I got a strong mentor in like when I was, I was running some gyms in Los Angeles and I had a mentor mm-hmm. there that had a sales background. So he got me, like he started me into like selling, right? Actually understanding like the, the tips of the trade and things like right. that. But then after that, like I, again, I never really had, a boss. In fact, more often than not, I got moved into the boss role very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so most of it was learning from customers, like actually paying attention to data, which a lot of salespeople aren't very good at. Like salespeople love the number one. If it works once, oh, I got this magic line. <laughs> like, oh, I know it worked. I got this magic line that will handle that objection. But the flip right. side is also true. You teach them something and it doesn't work once. Oh, that script was garbage. Right. It's garbage. It, do, it doesn't work. Like They don't pay attention to the actual results of what they're doing. And so I really did. I was split testing scripts. I was split testing emails. I was split testing everything long before like big data, little data became like a, a thing. So you know, learning from customers first and then a lot of self-education. And you know, we're we're joking about books a little bit, but you know, very few people, especially salespeople, read. Even fewer people actually finish the books and even fewer people actually do anything with what they read. Right. Whereas if you go and do that self-education and then actually do it and test the results, you can learn so much so quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, there should be a point as to why you're reading a purpose for why you're reading the books, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm going to read this book and you know, it's in my field. I'm sort of interested in it. But if you didn't learn anything from it, now, maybe you wasted your time. And if you did learn something from it, to your point, go try it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that when I talk about it also with learning from customers is that if you actually pay attention to your customers, oftentimes they'll teach you how to sell to them. And for me, this was this was crucial early in my career when I was selling some uh, yeah, moderate-sized systems, you know, today's dollars, you know, half-million-dollar type systems that... that uh, the customer would pretty much walk me through it, right? If, if I was screwing up, they'd correct me. I mean, I had one client I've written about before that 
he was going to give me the order, but he made me jump through hoops. He made me understand what's really important um, in terms of listening, in terms of connection, building the relationship, building trust that I would never have learned anywhere else. Well, so I, it's funny. I was talking about this, and I've really been starting to bring this up a lot on you know webinars and conferences I'm at, which is WWYCS. What would your customers say? Mm-hmm. Like salespeople, especially now, like you know, going back a little bit, there was more account management within the sales role for a long time before it's yeah. like over specialized. Now that it's so specialized, salespeople hardly ever talk to customers. We only talk to prospects. We never talk to customers, right? which causes us to do things that our prospects can't stand or don't understand because we don't approach them the way we should because we don't know what customers actually think. All right, so I tell people, you got if you're new to sales or you're in a new industry, or even if you're not new to sales and you've just never done this, you need to go talk to 30, 40 customers and ask them, why did you buy? What does our product do for you? How do you describe our product to your friends? What were you afraid of before buying our product? What's your favorite part of our product? And what's changed the most since you bought our product? Mm -hmm. If you went asked 30, 40 customers those questions, your scripts would be better, your voicemails would be better, your demo would be better, your email would be better, everything would be better. But salespeople don't talk to customers. We only talk to prospects. (laughs) It's such a great observation. And I, I think back to my own experience about what I learned from talking to the customers that I would have missed out on completely. That would have had a huge impact on how I sold, which was, and I learned this lesson several times early on in my career is remember selling a computer system to a good size home builder. And it was for an accounting application. And we had, we made us jump through hoops to demonstrate every single accounting package you had in depth, yada, yada, yada. It's long. They put out a, after talking to all the vendors, they narrowed it down to final three, sent out an RFP, huge compliance matrix in the RFP, which we diligently filled out. And then six months after they started implementation, I was you know, back several times before that, but you know, I was walking through the office and talking to the woman operating the computer. And it was, you know, so what are you doing? Oh, we're just doing billing. I said, wait, 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 wait. We demonstrated every package under the sun for you, so and so. She goes, yeah, but. We only needed to do billing. That's what's paying for it. Mm-hmm. And in every major opportunity I've worked on in my life, sold, closed hundreds of millions of dollars worth of large systems, is that there's always that one thing. Right. But if you never went back and talked to the customer, you'd never know that there was always just that one thing. No, absolutely. That's it's huge. And knowing the those things is so important. And also salespeople that are listening, you also need to understand people only buy for two to three reasons and justify with one to two more. They don't buy for 17 reasons. No. So, so no. stop showing them 17 different reasons why they should buy. Find out what matters through good discovery yep. and focus there. The sales reps across this country right now are losing deals over pieces of their product that the prospect didn't even care doesn't, about. Doesn't care about. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's, that's why when I teach discovery, I talk about you're finding the one thing, right? You got to find that one thing and the one person who who cares the most about that one thing, and that's your ticket to getting the order. There's always there's always one thing, and your job as a salesperson is to find out what that one thing is. 
Yeah, for, for sure. Like it, it can be simpler, not necessarily easy, but it can be simpler than most salespeople make it. And it makes things way harder on them than it needs to be. <laughs> well, and, but you're sort of touching on a, uh, a watchword or an expression. My first, my hiring boss, the boss that hired me, uh, told me the start of selling. I'd been out <laughs> pounding my head, making 30, 40 cold calls a day in person, you know, walking business parks door to door, selling computer systems. And he, he said, selling's really quite simple. It's not easy. <laughs> but it's really pretty simple. And I think you hit it right on the head with that. For sure. So you alluded to specialized sales roles, which we've seen as the growth of a lot over the last 10, 15 years. So let me ask you a question about why haven't we specialized management roles in the same way? You know, we're still, to my way of, of looking at it and analyzing it is, <laughs> based on my experiences, we're still fundamentally managing sales the way we did about 100 years ago. We've made all this progress on the seller side with specialized roles, but we still look to the KD as being you know, that heroic figure that knows everything. Right? He's an expert on performance and managing coaching performance. He's an expert on mindset, expert. All these things that's just impossible for one person to embody. And yet when we looked at other sort of performance-based professions like professional sports, and you look how they staff their coaching staffs these days, it's full of specialists. So why haven't we gone specialized on the management side? Man, it's, it's, this is funny that you bring this up because this is something I've been playing with um, mentally and also like I've kind of mapped out a little bit along these lines of... Oh. Me too. Trust me. So this is so it's actually funny. You're the first person like that's really like I think approached this with me. So we'll we'll dive into it. I agree first of all of that every manager tends to have something they are better at than the other managers, especially if you're building a a good diverse team, right? So like when I'm hiring and I'm looking at managers or directors, I want people that complement me. I don't want them to be like me because one, you can only handle so much of me. I'm a bit of a handful. But two, <laughs> if we have the same strengths and the same weaknesses, they only get amplified. Right. right? And so it's interesting. I, um, last year at one point, we were trying to hire an AE manager and it came down to two phenomenal candidates. Like one of the hardest hiring decisions I've actually had to make in a while. Like I had one spot and they were both great. And I was sitting, I was like, which one do I pick? Right? Like I don't have a reason either way. And I went with the one who is the most different from the managers we had. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? I know what I'm going to get with this manager. I think I know what I'll get with this manager and it's different. And I went the different route and it was exactly what we should have done. It was the right hire. Um, she's been amazing and it's had an incredible impact on our team. But what I've been playing with to your other question is if I have a team of 40 and that's, you know, five managers with seven to eight each, mm -hmm. instead of trying to find five world-class managers, what if I had three world-class managers and three coaches under them? <laughs> that's where i'm heading that's where I'm that's heading. that specialized in prospecting closing and like mindset and wellness 
Yeah, for example, right. And budgetary-wise, it's actually a, an easy swap. I mm-hmm. think it gives the reps more of what they actually need because a manager with 10 reps can only do so much coaching per rep. But if exactly. I have someone whose full-time job it is to do coaching, exactly. they can get way more. So I'm, I'm with you and I'm dabbling. I'm playing around with how I could potentially make something like that work because I think it gives you the best of both worlds. All right. We'll have to keep talking about that because that's that's a huge passion project of mine. I think that you know, I sort of summon or summarize and saying, you look at the way we manage sales is is the only message you can really take away from it is that in leadership positions, whether it's a C-suite or executive sales leadership position, that A, they don't understand performance. And B is is they really don't fundamentally care about it because they're not prepared to invest in it. And as evidenced by the fact, again, we've fundamentally managed sales the same. We've done, I said, radical changes on the selling side, yet we still sort of manage in a very archaic fashion. And I, I you know, people try to understand, I give them the example of, of what I'm talking about. If, I don't know if you ever watched the show Billions. Um, I'm familiar with it. I haven't watched it, no. But about hedge fund and so on. But one of their mm-hmm. key employees is an on-staff psychiatrist. Right. Yeah, and the player, the sellers get into a, a slump. They go visit Wendy. I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Why aren't we doing something like that? I have I have looked into having a full time or on call like therapist, hypnotherapist for my team because of how much of an impact it had on my life in terms right. of confidence and stress relief and you know undoing exactly. the baggage of growing up that we all carry around and pretend we don't have but we all do like i was like why wouldn't i right like if i swapped out you know budget wise one sdr for a full-time on-site therapist would i see the mm-hmm. return on that absolutely yeah. absolutely <laughs> Like, no, uh, no, me, no doubt. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, it's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. I mean, and so we we have you know this issue with you know we've got all this incredible technology to use to to help our sellers potentially get better. But yeah, that missing link is we don't know how to coach it. Mm-hmm. We don't have people that really understand that. Instead, what we're saying is let's go throw money at sales training. All this you know, nineteen billion dollars a year on sales training. That to your point is quickly forgotten, not retained. And doesn't move the needle. Well, and what's interesting there too, and like I've seen that stat and study, but as a sales leader who talks to a lot of other sales leaders, I'm like, where is this $19 billion going? (laughs) And the answer is? In the, like, I don't know. Like, where is it going? Because I don't, I know very, very few teams that I think heavily invest in sales training. I know some of like the bigger corporations do, and I know that's where a decent amount of that goes. But where is it going and who's tracking whether it's working? Because this $19 billion doesn't seem to be having the ROI we want, considering that quota attainment by reps has dropped by 40% over the cross five years. Right. Well, clearly it's not. Like who's tracking this shit, right? Who's in charge of this nineteen billion? Because I'll sign up. I'll take some you of are. That nineteen billion. Shoot. Well, but at, at some it's it's just wasted, right? Is mm-hmm. uh, sure. Let let's bring in the sales training company for a day and and you know run people through. And it's not like the content is bad. It's to your point before is we're trying to teach people in a way that's ineffective, 
So there's no re- no retention. It's it's and this is the point I was trying to make to a sales trainer who got really mad at me because I told him I said your your training doesn't work. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know somebody went to your training class and then they called me up and said, "Can you come teach us how to sell?" Mm. And it's not that there wasn't any value in what they were learning, but the way it was taught, there's no retention. Right. And it doesn't really help them in you know sort of game time situations. So it's it's like yeah, we just <laughs> people do that all the time. They hire people like me to come in and talk at a sales kickoff meeting. That counts as training. Yeah, you know, I talked at a, a kickoff at a brand name company, tech company, and I said, you know, I'm not going to bid on this unless you agree that we're going to do follow on activities. You know, that we're going to have uh, monthly and quarterly reinforcement webinars and so on and reinforce the points we talked about with your sales team. And they said, sure, 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 sure. And then they never did them. It's crazy. That's just crazy. <laughs> and they paid a lot of money for it. Hmm. So sort of last topic, and it's aligned with what we've been talking about, is because you talked about rep performance. And there's a bigger topic of, of productivity in sales. And one is, is I don't, I don't think we define productivity the right way. I mean, I define productivity the way economists define productivity, a rate of output per unit of input. Um, but in sales, people tend to look at productivity as, well, how many calls did I make? So to me, it's like the bottom line is to improve, we have to improve productivity and, and performance sort of goes along with it. But I just wonder whether we're completely focused on the wrong things, like quota, for instance. Does quota still have value if so few people are making it? Oh boy! So there's a few things to unpack there, right? Like, oh yeah, quotas quotas have value, but many people don't set the right quotas, right? Because what's also happened over the past, you know, five, really, you know, ten years, especially, like, is how much more like VC money has been thrown in to the world. So there's this additional pressure to go hit numbers that aren't feasible or possible to go hit, right? Right. And so to the question there, right, like productivity, efficiency, and attainment, it does all come down to numbers. And this is where a lot of people, like they'll build plans or build quotas that are mathematically impossible to hit. But then on the same side, people will push back and say, oh, well, it's not about, it's not about activity. It's about the end result, which is true. But also, there's math that leads into that end result. There's always math. Right? Like, if I know my connect rate is 7% and my conversion rate is 35% and my close rate is 42% and my show rate is 80%, I can map out what I need to do to get to that goal. And so, where I've approached this in a lot of ways is when it comes to, like, the rep day-to-day, I'm not... I'm not actually, I don't know if product, maybe I look at this the wrong way or have a different definition. I don't look at productivity. I look at efficiency. If you're going to work for eight hours, how much can we get done in those eight hours? Right? So it's not dialing for dialing's sake. It's not like, oh, you have to make 50 calls because you know what? You might be able to get to your goal off 30 calls. But if you're working for eight hours, that just also means you're being inefficient if you're only getting 30 calls done in that day. Does that make sense? So I look well, at yeah. it on both sides is like what 
what do we need to get there? Just numerically, what do we need? But then also, if we're structuring our days properly and working the right way, how much can we get done in a day? Right. So I look at it differently. Mm-hmm. So what I look at productivity is is fundamentally, yeah, just like we measure it in the economy at large, is is in the case of sales, it's how many dollars of revenue can I generate per hour of selling time? Mm-hmm. Now, if I know that, then I can calculate a capacity for the organization. Because I know how many hours I have of selling time, and that's not going to be eight. It's going to be whatever you know our stat is, whether it's three or four hours per day. But it gives me more information to work with and saying, what are the levers I can pull to increase? I'm not going to worry about the number of hours available to work initially. I'm just going to work on how can I make this person more effective to generate more dollars of revenue per hour. And so I started managing teams this way back 30 years ago where we collected every hour that a sales engineer, a seller spent on pre-sale, whatever, inside sales. And I knew exactly how many hours it was taking me to close a certain amount of revenue. Mm-hmm. Now, knowing that what that factor is, I can say, okay, well, based on that and based on the staff and so on, this is my theoretical capacity. Right now, to your point earlier, is, you know, people are saying their capacity is, I've got 10 sellers at this quota, young know, factor it a little bit. That's my that's my capacity, potential capacity, and it's just not the case. Yeah. And the trouble with quota, and the reason I asked the question about that is that A is no one's making it, so it's sort of useless, regardless of whether it's being set fairly or not. But the second part is is I don't know if you've heard of Goodhart's law. Um, I have not. I'm excited to learn though. Okay. So I think it was Charles Goodhart, I think it was his first name, but he was a British economist and he came up with this theory that he proved out, uh, said that when a, a uh, target becomes a goal, uh, I make sure I got this right. Yeah, when, when, <laughs> excuse me, when a goal becomes a target, it loses all value as a, as a goal. But basically what it's saying is that people optimize their processes to try to achieve the target. And instead of saying, look, I could, I could do so much more, right? But they're aiming at this this artificial target and optimizing their processes for that. And, and I think that's a problem we start having sales is what if people weren't aiming at that that target and sort of getting the self-fulfilling prophecy going? Yeah, it's it's very interesting because it, one, it's one of the reasons why I don't like floors on commission plans because it changes what people are looking at for that target. Mm-hmm. Because most of them start to look at the bottom, like, let me make sure I'm safe. And so to your point, exactly. They start looking at the bottom as now the target. Well, I at right. least got to get to that. And that's what they start to mess with. But to further go to your point, which is with quotas and commissions, like, like it's, not, it's not working. All these comp plans that are like, oh, look at all these juicy accelerators. Look at how much money you can make if you can get to here. It's not motivating sellers to go get to it. It does like they're not they're not getting there. Like all these comp plans are built in a way for overperformance when half of the team isn't even getting to performance. Right. So yeah. fundamentally, it's broken and people are afraid to admit it. It's still just this like here's what's always very funny to me, right? A lot of people believe salespeople are coin operated. Right? You've right. heard that before. Right. Salespeople yep. are coin operated. Well, here's what a lot of people seem to have forgotten. 
how does a coin-operated machine work? You have to put the money in first to get what you want. <laughs> right? Well, that's, that's what they'd say base salary is for, right? Right. But that's not what coin-operated means. Right. Yeah, right, right. Like coin operating. Oh, they're coin operated. You give them money, they produce. Well, yeah. so then why don't we give salespeople money to produce? I can't walk up to a gumball machine and turn the knob, get the gum, and then put the money in. Yeah, fair. I love it. That's how we treat salespeople. Go yeah. perform and we'll give you your coin. And that actually goes against almost all studies done on motivation and productivity is when monetary value gets put on a cognitive task, not a manual task, a cognitive mm-hmm. task, creativity goes down, problem solving goes down, empathy goes down, EQ goes down, the ability to learn goes down. But that's how we pay our salespeople. Yeah, it relates to Goodhart's law, which I I completely screwed up when I was saying it before. The <laughs> law is when a measure becomes a target, it loses all ah, value. Okay, the there we go. Yeah, that it's the end of the day on a Friday. I hear you. <laughs> I'm, I I'm hear tired. You. But yeah, when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure, which is, you think about it, for quota, that's exactly right. So, well, it's so, yeah, what you're talking about, the system being broken, it reminds me of this uh, quote from Edward Deming, you know, the famous quality control, continuous quality improvement guy back from the 50s and 60s. And I just had read this quote again recently this week. He said, Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Mm. And I think this is, this is where we're stuck in sales, right? Yeah. We've, we've designed these systems that are designed to suboptimally produce. Yeah. And what's hard, and this is coming from you know, a leader in the position, is because it's so rampant industry-wide, it's almost like you're not allowed to change it. Right? Like... I've, and I've brought these ideas up, but do you think I can walk up to my CFO tomorrow and be like, yo, like, I don't want to pay my salespeople commission. I want to pay them full OTE. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, no, they, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Right. Like, I don't think they should have, you know, a quota plan. I think it should just be straightforward what they need to produce to keep their, their jobs, just like every other job. No, we won't do that. Like it, it, it's so rampant that even someone like me, quote unquote, in a position of power, I can't make those changes even if I wanted to. Yeah, it's, it, well, that's, that's the problem is we talked about before, as I was alluding to before, is we're just stuck. Mm-hmm. And no one seems to care enough to want to change it. You know, in the SaaS business in general, I, I look at it from my perspective, my experience selling, again, different type products, but selling quite a lot of it. I couldn't have existed on a 20% win rate. Oh, right. I mean, I just couldn't have. I, I, I would have failed. And yet, we've institutionalized that. We set up the whole system so it, it creates that. And so, right. that's not good. How do we change that? So, it start, it's going... The people that are starting to understand this, the, the numbers are starting to grow. And they're starting to get into the VP level and the exec level. And... We're, we're going to be that next round of executives. We're going to be those next rounds of people starting to run companies. And I think that's when it starts to shift, right? There's been a long time gap between called the top and the people coming up in terms of 
the environment that they grew up selling in, the environment that they came up with, the technological landscape. Like it's going to be this next round coming up that starts to make some of these changes because we have to, right? I love the point that you made around like a system. And Dunning was the art of scientific management. Is that Dunning? Or is that someone uh, else? I think that's someone else. This is- All right. Okay. So what the, the system, right? Like people aren't willing to admit that it's not working. We've specialized and results have gone down and no one wants to admit it. Well, we've applied all this technology and results have gone down. Right. We have all this technology. We've got <laughs> yeah. all that we've specialized, which is supposed to make it go up. And it's not, but we're just going to do, and the solution now in sales, we'll just do more of it. Just get more tools, (laughs) do more. You know what? Now we need specialization. You know what? We need left-handed salespeople and right-handed salespeople. Exactly. Let's specialize that. Like, you know, it's, I think in the next, I mean, it has to happen. Otherwise it just all falls apart. But in the next four to five years as the exec level starts to change and the startup level starts to change a little bit as I think when you start to see these things start to happen, because there are people out there that are starting to get this and understand this. We just need to get to that next level to be able to make those changes. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to foment that change here on this program mm-hmm. <laughs> as witnessed by the questions. Cause it's like, it has to change. It has to, you know, there's a, there was a, a <laughs> Great story I heard uh, on a podcast this week, uh, Dan Heath, who's written this book, Upstream, which is a very interesting book that I'm in the middle of reading, and talking about problem solving for systems. And it's sort of this apocryphal tale about two two young men are swimming in a river, and they see a young baby floating by. And so one goes in and gets the water, wades into the water and brings the baby out, sets it in in shore, and, and suddenly... You know, two more babies float by, and the guy goes back in and gets the two more. And as soon as he gets them to shore, you know, two more float by, and his friend takes off running upstream. <laughs> and he goes, where are you going? we got these babies to save us. Well, I'll go upstream and see who's throwing these babies in the water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's sort of <laughs> the issue we have is, you know, we have to go upstream on this problem. And it really starts, to the point we're just talking about, it starts at the top. You know, until the sea level starts caring about performance and productivity and is willing to commit to changing how we train people, how we hire people, how we treat management, how we invest in our management to make this happen, specialized roles in management and so on. Yeah, we're, we're fighting uphill. Yeah. And I, I do have to say this, you know, real quick too, as a small caveat, I can empathize also with the C-suite because who taught them? Where, where is the school for CEOs? Sure. You know, like the, we invest $19 billion into sales training. How many billion dollars do we invest into startup CEO training? Well, but the $20 billion is not just startups. That's all U.S. companies, right? That's right? all in. Right? This, I'm, I'm saying across the board. <laughs> sure. But this problem extends for companies of all types. It's not just startups. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you're in the startup world. I came from the startup world. We see this more acutely. But you know, let's not kid ourselves. It's every company is confronting these issues. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, KD, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Oh, this is fun, man. We'll have to do this again. Anytime. Anytime. Believe me. We'll start working through that pile of books behind you. We'll talk about those as well. So I'm sure Love I've read it. most of them. So if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, 
Kevin Dorsey. Um, I don't have any of the other social channels like Twitter, or Gram, or Snap, or any of that. So find me on LinkedIn. I try to post there regularly and respond back to questions and comments. So look me up. Yeah, I can second that. It's a great follow. Follow Kevin. So, all right, Katie, thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks, man. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank Kevin Dorsey, KD, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, we'd really appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. And remember to connect with me on LinkedIn or drop me a message again if you have a question about anything that we discuss on the show. So thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.